share with you from Luke chapter 3, and then I also have a few other passages I want to share to help set the stage for what we're talking about with Jesus' baptism. So Luke 3, verse 21, says, when all the people were being baptized, remember John was out in the wilderness baptizing people, Jesus came out and he was baptized too. And as Jesus was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. And then I want to share the same story from Matthew chapter 3. There's just a little more, more detail here to give us a little bit more of an understanding of this same event. Matthew chapter 3, verse 13, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. Throughout Scripture, when you see the Jordan River, the Jordan River often symbolizes the idea of transition, and we can certainly see that here, that there's a transition taking place, you know, transitioning out of something and into something new. And here Jesus was transitioning into public ministry and all that would accompany that. So Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John, but John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. A few more scriptures. These are from the Old Testament, and I want to show you uh, some prophecies that we're going to see coming uh, into fruition here. Isaiah chapter 9 Verses 1 and 2, this is one that we've shared oftentimes at Christmas time, but we can see it in this context. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations, or some translations say Galilee of the Gentiles, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Interesting note, Galilee was, was often called the land of the Gentiles. It was originally part of the land that Joshua conquered way back at, at the beginning of the story of the Old Testament. And then it had been uh, overrun or taken over by Gentiles. And there was a period in time, a couple uh, hundred years before Christ came, that they actually tried to circumcise all of the Gentiles and basically force them into Judaism, and that didn't work out so well, and so it's just ended up as a, basically a Gentile, a non-Jewish town. And so when people were looking for the Messiah, they would probably be looking anywhere but Galilee, unless they knew what Scripture had been saying, where the Messiah would come from. They would have hoped he would come from somewhere besides Galilee, but Jesus came from Galilee through the Jordan River into his public ministry. We have a quote in Isaiah 700 years before that is almost identical to what God spoke about his son at his baptism in Isaiah chapter 42. And I want to share, I'm just sharing these with you because they were spoken hundreds of years before and we see them fulfilled. We see these words actually come to life in Jesus' 
life and ministry. Isaiah 42, verse 1 through 4 says, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. And faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth, and his teaching the islands will put their hope. I love that last line. It's a great picture of just how far the gospel would eventually spread, that that it would spread to to the uttermost parts of the earth, as, as the New Testament puts it. It would spread as far as the eye could see. In fact, it wouldn't just be on the mainlands that we would see the gospel, but we can actually see the gospel go to the islands and the islands. His teaching would actually make its way to even the most remote places on earth. One last one from Isaiah chapter 64. It says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. And that's, in fact, a part of what we see taking place in this story. Well, a lot of us know that Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, but have we ever stopped and asked the question, why did Jesus need to be baptized by John the Baptist? It's a question that I've been wrestling with throughout the course of this week, and, and I want to share with you some of the thoughts that I've had as, I, as I've wrestled with it, because it's, it's an interesting thing that takes place. It, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense when you just look at it from the surface. The first reason it makes, it's a little bit confusing is because John's baptism, as we learned a couple weeks ago, his baptism was a baptism of repentance. Remember we talked about repenting and turning away from something and turning towards God, and that's the baptism that John was sharing with us like we learned last week. But Jesus didn't need to repent of anything. So why would Jesus need to be baptized in John's baptism of repentance? Especially when you consider what John knew about baptism. In Luke chapter 3, we, or John chapter one, I think this is, I think I have the wrong reference here. It says, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful, more powerful than I will come. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And as we read earlier, we see that even John the Baptist, John the baptizer, the one who did baptizing, was surprised at Jesus' request to be baptized by John. We see this in Matthew chapter 3, verse 14. It says, John tried to deter Jesus, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and yet you come to me. So even John seems a little perplexed about the situation. Why, why do I need to baptize the Messiah? Why do I need to baptize Jesus? In fact, John the Baptist would also say, we see this recorded in John chapter 1, he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. So we can see that if, if anyone should have been baptizing anyone, it seems like Jesus should have been baptizing John, and yet that's not the case. Another thing that makes this interesting is that baptism was not a you know, regular ordinance of the Old Covenant or the Old Testament. There were ceremonial cleansings that were a regular part of things. 
There are instances, there are things that happen where it appears that people were baptized. A good example of that would be Naaman in, in Second, King, Second Kings chapter 5 where he had leprosy and he was told by a prophet to go and dip in the river seven times. And that word dip is what we, where we get our New Testament idea of baptism. But it wasn't a regular part of Old Testament covenantal life. Sacrifices were more norm. There's this interesting word here in this that says that uh, then Jesus came from Galilee. That's what we saw at the beginning of uh, Matthew chapter 3. Jesus came from Galilee. And uh, this word came, you know, we might just look over that, but there are, there are two definitions of the word came. One is to come, to be here, you know, to, ar- to arrive, but the other one is to make one's public appearance. And so it's interesting if you think about that, that definition of the word that Jesus made his public appearance in Galilee, and here is Jesus' first public appearance in his ministry that he would have on earth. So Jesus arrived, Jesus made his public appearance to Galilee, and John the Baptist is the one that has been chosen to prepare the way for Jesus. And so now we're starting, I think, to maybe make a little bit of sense that it would be fitting since John the Baptist was preparing the way that Jesus should begin his ministry through the ministry of John the Baptist. In fact, Jesus being baptized by John the Baptist gives credence to John the Baptist's ministry of baptism. If there had been a problem with what John was doing, Jesus would not have been baptized by John, but he chose to begin his public ministry in this way. I want to diverge for just a second and talk about baptism because for us, baptism is a symbol and it's a very important symbol. It's a very important part of, a, of our faith as followers of Jesus Christ. Uh, we will do baptisms. We, we do baptisms as often as we can do baptisms. And I would say this morning that if you're here and you have not been baptized, then it's time to get baptized. And I would love for you to put that on your I Have Decided card and put that in the offering at the end of the service. And we will have a baptism service as soon as we have someone that needs to be baptized. We won't wait for that. We'll work it in whenever it needs to be done. But baptism for us is a very important symbol in our faith. I want to take you to second or to uh, Colossians chapter two, verse eleven through fifteen, to help set the stage to create the idea of what baptism is going to become as a result of Jesus' ministry on earth. So we can gain our understanding from our perspective, looking back on Jesus' ministry, and maybe understand it a little bit better why Jesus was baptized. Colossians two, verse eleven: Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off. When you are circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith and the working of God, who raised him from the dead. So for new believers, for people putting their faith in Jesus Christ, we don't do the circumcision of the Old Testament as a part of the covenant. We do baptism. And baptism is a symbol where we look at ourselves and we consider ourselves dead to our old life. And so we're buried with him, what we say, we're buried with him through baptism. So as we go down in the waters of baptism, we're buried with Christ, just like Christ died and was buried. And then as we come up out of the water, we're raised to a new life 
in Christ. Verse 13 of Colossians 2, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So our old self that was ruled by sin and rebellion against God was buried with Christ through baptism. That old self, that old life has now been buried, and now when we are raised to new life in Christ, we're raised to a resurrected life in Jesus Christ. But then you have to kind of think back, right? Because we're talking about Jesus' baptism. Jesus didn't need to die to sin. He didn't have any sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 20, 21 says, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus didn't need to be baptized to die to sin. He didn't know sin. One quick note before we move on, because I think this is interesting. I grew up in uh, the Wesleyan Church, um, which was a combination of a couple of, of denominations that existed in the 60s, I think maybe in the early 70s, which was the, the, called the Wesley Methodist and the Pilgrim Holiness Church. Pilgrim Holiness Church was kind of the line that my family was from, and it was a more... Uh, uh, I would say demonstrative, you know, people would probably call it charismatic kind of a church, and uh, the Wesley Methodist was, was not. <laughs> the Wesley Methodist was a very methodical, in fact, that's where the name comes from, you know, Methodism comes from John Wesley's Methodist methodic approach to, you know, to being a believer in Jesus Christ, and so they were Methodists, Wesley Methodists. Well, so those two churches merged and became the Wesleyan church. And our symbol, and you've probably seen this um, at, at a lot of Methodist churches still use this symbol, uh, they have the dove, right? The dove is a part of the symbol of the church, a symbol of the denomination. I don't know if anyone has seen that, but, but for I think a lot of us, and maybe myself included, we see the dove as the Holy Spirit. And we think the Holy Spirit is a dove, and so it's kind of, you know, kind of looks like a dove. If we're looking for the Holy Spirit, we see we're going to look for a dove, right? That's that's what we're looking for when you look for the the Holy Spirit. There's a whole flock of doves right on uh, 99th Street, and so, you know, the white doves, pretty doves, they fly around in these patterns. I don't know that somebody either owns doves or there's just a weird flock of doves over there. But, um, you know, so so is is that the Holy Spirit? Maybe the Holy Spirit lives over there and just kind of, you know, circles around that house, and we should go knock on that door and see uh, just what's going on there, because maybe that's where the Spirit lives because of the doves. But um, the Holy Spirit is not a dove, and that actually is pretty, should be hopefully clear in the text, especially in the two that we read. So as Jesus was praying, this is Luke chapter 20, or 321 and 22. As Jesus was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily, flo- bodily form like a dove. Key word there, like. And I'm not talking, 
in the context of how most of us use the word like as a substitute for um. And like Jesus was kind of like, uh, like a dove, like, I mean, like, you know. Like as in as, similar. This is how we can describe it to you. Same thing in Matthew chapter 3, the same expression. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. Interesting word, alighting on him. It wasn't just, it wasn't just descending on him and kind of landing on him, but actually seems to be creating something more in Jesus. So the Spirit is not a dove. That is just the description of how it looked when the Spirit came down and descended on to Jesus at that moment. There's a whole lot of speculation about the Spirit coming on Jesus. And, you know, one of the things that, that we've talked about is that, that maybe perhaps there are times throughout Jesus' ministry we see this, that, that the Spirit comes on Jesus to do certain things. And, you know, so there is a certain enabling that the Holy Spirit gives us to perform certain, you know, church ministerial functions because we're all ministers of the gospel as members of the body of Christ. And so when God is calling us to do something, the Spirit will empower us to do what God has called us to do. So if God, if you feel God leading you to do something that seems outside the norm, he will not lead you to do something that he also is not going to empower you to do. We see that through the life of Jesus. We see the Holy Spirit coming on him. This is also a great picture for us as our faith in the Trinitarian nature of our God because we see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit converge on this one scene. I want to share with you some of my thoughts as we move towards wrapping all of this up on what I think is taking place here. This, this is, I think, I would, I would classify this as speculation. I would say it's studied speculation. These are some thoughts that I have that maybe, maybe this is truth. Maybe this is, this is what happened. Maybe I'm uh, conjuring some of these things up. But these are some, some observations that I might have. So I wouldn't take all of these and run with them as doctrine. But maybe they can inform our understanding of the situation a little bit. First, what I think is happening with Jesus and the baptism is that he's identifying with sinners. That, that he, even though he knew no sin, those who were coming out to be baptized were sinners, just like we were sinners apart from Christ. So they were coming out as sinners and being baptized into John's baptism of repentance. And so Jesus was now going to start identifying with sinners. And in fact, we would see this throughout his ministry that he would spend a lot of time with sinners. That would become one of his nicknames, that the one who drinks with sinners. So I think there is that, you know, perhaps this is totally just my theory, I don't, I, and I wouldn't even die for this. This is just an interesting thought that I think could be a possibility, that even perhaps in this moment that, that he is, you know, uh, metaphorically being immersed in our sin. So it's almost like he's being 
putting on our sin. And you know, maybe he's putting on our sin in this moment. Maybe, maybe the sin of, him, of all of humanity comes on him here. Maybe it comes on him throughout his ministry. Maybe it comes on him all at the cross and he carries the weight of our sin. I don't know exactly how all of that works and I don't think anyone really understands completely how all of that happened. But, but maybe this is kind of the beginning of Jesus starting to carry our sin, being immersed in the baptism of sinners. But here we see that this was going to take place to fulfill all righteousness. This was Jesus' words to John as his argument for why, she, why uh, he should do this. John says in Matthew chapter 3, verse 14, I need to be baptized you, and do you come to me? But Jesus replied, let it be so now. It's proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. To fulfill all righteousness. Well, righteousness is, our understanding, is doing what the Father has given us to do. Living rightly is living by God's standards that he has given us to do. It is essentially obedience to God's plan and commands for our lives. So fulfilling all righteousness would, would indicate that this was something the Father had wanted the Son to do. To do this would be to fulfill all righteousness, to fulfill what we have been given to, to do. <clears throat> and this is important for us to understand. So listen up and pay close attention here. Jesus was not a rogue agent. Jesus, though he stood in direct opposition to the religious leaders of the day, was not acting on his own. He had not left the kingdom of God and come out and started a rebellion against what appeared to be God's chosen people. I think that's maybe a lot of the perception that we have of Jesus Christ is that, that Jesus was a rebel and he was coming in to kind of stick it to the man. But when we see how Jesus lived his life, it becomes very clear that he could not do anything apart from what the Father had given him to do. John chapter 5, verse 19 says, Very truly, this is Jesus speaking, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. So Jesus, by being baptized by John the Baptist, is, is being obedient to the Father. He is, he is willing to, listen, he's willing to submit himself to an inferior person, an inferior leader for God's greater purposes in the kingdom and in his plan. John the Baptist, even though Jesus said there has not been another one born among women as great as John the Baptist, John the Baptist was still human fallen and flawed. And yet Jesus, out of obedience to the Father, submits himself to the ministry of John the Baptist to begin his public ministry. And I think this maybe creates a very interesting uh, dynamic because Jesus and John the Baptist 
are engaged in this action that is fulfilling all righteousness. It's, they're coming together as a team of ministers to fulfill God's righteous plan for that moment in time. And then what do we see happen as a result of it? As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened. Heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him, and a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. This was a little bit different than all of the other baptisms that had taken place out in the wilderness. To my understanding, the heavens had not split God's voice had not sounded, the Spirit had not descended on anyone else who had been baptized, and yet all those who had been out there to be baptized would have observed the heavens parting and the Spirit descending and God speaking. Jesus was obedient. In fact, we will see throughout Jesus' life this major important theme for all of us who are following Jesus Christ, he would be obedient to the Father no matter what the cost. No matter how much it was going to cost Jesus personally, no matter how much it was going to cost Jesus emotionally, no matter how much it was going to cost Jesus physically, no matter how much it was going to cost Jesus spiritually, no matter how much it was going to cost Jesus, he was obedient to the Father, period, no questions asked. So with this understanding, I think we can actually learn a lot from Jesus' baptism because it's really a great way to start your ministry if you are the son and you can only do what the father tells you to do. Jesus was starting his ministry being submissive to the father. It's a word we don't like much these days. It's a concept we kind of reject, right? It's an idea we kind of stand against. We don't want to be submissive to anyone. No one is going to tell me how to live my life. No one's going to tell me what to do. I will do what I feel like doing. Even if God tells me this is how I'm supposed to live my life, I'm only going to do it when I feel like doing it. Don't you tell me how to live my life. I don't care if you are God. It's my life. But we need to understand from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, as we're going to look at Jesus' life for a long time, we're going to really dig into and investigate all the things that Jesus did. We need to understand that he was operating submissively to the Father himself, that he was not acting on his own. He did what the Father gave him to do. And if we are going to be his followers, if we are going to be his disciples, those who come under his teaching, under his leadership, and under his authority as Jesus Christ is the head of this church and is the head of the church globally, then we need to understand that coming under Jesus' ministry is to come under the leadership of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and the Father. What he gives us to do is what we do. We have to be willing to submit no matter what the cost. When you live this kind of a life, you will almost undoubtedly find yourself in a situation where you're asking God, this doesn't make sense. Why are you having me do this? 
uh, God, I don't really understand what's going on here. So you, you want me to do what? You want me to go where? You want me to say that to them? <laughs> you, you might be God, but I don't think you understand everything that's taken place. I don't think you really understand that person. I don't think you understand my situation, God. I don't think you really know what's taking place here. But if we can learn something from Jesus' baptism, we can learn that no matter what the cost, no matter if it makes sense or not, no matter if we can understand why this is happening, why we are going through this, why we are supposed to go in this direction or that, we just, we just need to be faithful to the call upon our lives. Okay, you have called me. I will answer. Let's go where you lead me. I am your servant. It may not always make sense. In fact, it may not ever make sense. But will we follow, even if it's not clear? Will we follow, even if it's not simple? Will we follow, even if it's not easy? This amazing thing happens here that God speaks out and he says, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Obeying God, following God, doing what God has given us to do, living this righteous life, which means to do what God has given us to do. Living righteously brings pleasure to God. We often say that when God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's probably a phrase that you're familiar with, that, that when God looks at you, he now sees you through the righteousness of his son. So, so he sees you as a new creation, a new person made now, being remade in the image of Christ. So he sees you through the righteousness of Jesus. The call on us is to now live out that fulfillment, to fulfill the righteousness of Jesus in our lives. There's something else that is also true that I think we can tie into the baptism is that when God looks at us now, once we put our faith in Jesus Christ, he sees the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. But what is also true is that on the cross, Jesus saw us being imposed on his perfect son. One of my favorite lines from a hymn is, it was our sin that held him there. Jesus, the perfect sinless one, did not need to die on the cross for his own sins, but, but he willingly, obediently went to the cross to pay the price for our sins. So now that we who have put our faith in Jesus Christ have been buried with him through baptism, now our, our death was his death on the cross. Our death to our old self has been taken care of through the death that Jesus Christ died for us on the cross. We are now are, are dead to that old life, and now we can be raised to this new life in Jesus Christ, which is the resurrection life, the resurrected victorious life that God has for us. See, in a very real and exacting sense, Jesus took our sin on the cross. He took on our sin. He became sin who knew no sin. He became our sin. He became our wrongdoings, our rebellion against God. 
And he did that because that was what the Father had given him to do. He was obedient to the Father even to the point of death on a cross. This is a tremendously amazing gift for us as his followers. That that we did not have to endure the cross, but Christ endured it for us. That, That we did nothing to deserve the resurrection, and yet Christ rose for us. And now because of the work and the love of the Father through Jesus Christ the Son, imputed to us as his own righteousness, now the Father can look on us and say, you are my son, you are my daughter, with you I am well pleased. That when we put our faith in Jesus Christ and when he becomes our identity, when we're no longer defined by who we think we are and what we think we can accomplish and what we think we can do for God's good and for for our own good to earn our position with God, when we finally start to set those things behind us and start to now put on the obedience of following Jesus Christ and what he has given us, then, then Christ actually becomes what God is pleased with in our lives and our identity now is being reshaped and remolded into the image of Christ himself. And now you are pleasing to God. That's why the gospel is such good news that even though, as we sang earlier, we couldn't have done anything to deserve or earn it, we have been freely given it. So then if we're to be obedient What are we supposed to do? There's a lot. I'm not going to list it all, but I'm going to list the big ones that we've talked about many, many times. What has God given us to do as his followers? To love him with all our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength. That's what God has given us to do. This is our obedience for us to walk out, to to love him with everything we are, to hold nothing back for ourselves, but to give it all to God as an act of worship. Worship is whatever consumes our attention and our affection. Well, what has consumed your attention and your affection throughout the course of this past week? Was it God or was it other things? Maybe there are some things in our lives we need to cut out so that we can love him with all our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strengths, and, and we can be set apart for his ministry and his purpose in life. What has God given us to do? He has charged us to love our neighbors as ourselves. We are supposed to love those around us the way we love ourselves, and in fact, we have been given such a great love that we ought to give such a great love. Do you love your neighbors, not just the ones who live next to you, but your neighbors at the office, your neighbors everywhere as yourselves? We've also been given the charge of taking the light of God's love into the darkness of the world. These are not mere suggestions that are given to us. If you feel like doing it, when it feels right to you, take the light into the darkness. No, this, these are commands that not only are we supposed to do, but this is who we are now in Christ. We are now light, and we are called to go into the darkness of the world and make disciples. To, to teach people about God's love for them, to, to live Jesus before people, to show Jesus to the world that doesn't know, to live a life of love and become the love of God so that the world around us can see the love of God through us and that they may be drawn into God in us and, and want God in them for their own lives and become his followers, his disciples. But this comes at the price of obedience in each and every one of us. Obedience that pleases the Father, no matter what the cost. 
I'm not going to lie to you, the, the call is great. The cost is high. I think it's maybe a foreign idea to us anymore to give up things for the kingdom. We're kind of used to having everything, but it will become clear to all of us that there will be things that God is going to ask us to give up. There will be things that we have to sacrifice and lay down and trust that God has a better plan for us in it. I don't know what that is for us, for all of us in this room this morning. I don't know what God may be calling you to do, but I know that his plans for you, for all of us in it, are, are much greater than our own understanding of God's plans. That we serve this, this God who is awesome and in control of everything. That we serve this God who is what we call omnipotent. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He is all-seeing. He is all-understanding. And when you look at how great and mighty and awesome and powerful our God is, then, then we should be absolutely 100% willing to go wherever He leads us, no matter what the cost, even when we don't understand because we understand who He is. We understand what he is. We understand what he knows, how he thinks about us. And so even if we don't understand it all, we know that in his plans there is perfection for us, that, that he will guard us, he will protect us, he will keep us safe, he will lead us where he wants us to go, he will fight the enemy on our behalf. In fact, the enemy has already been defeated and has no power over each and every one of us who are in the kingdom of God, and now he's setting us free from the hold of the power of sin and death and hell and the grave and any of those things that the lies and the deceiver has on our lives. We have now been set free from that. He sets us free, and now he reigns victoriously, mightily, powerfully for all of eternity. There is no one who compares to our God. I think it would be good of us to start following him with everything today. Let's stand together. Mighty, awesome, wonderful, powerful, amazing, indescribable, undeniable is our God. You, our God, are great. There is no one like you. Thank you for the image, the picture we see of your son being obedient to you, our father. Thank you for that example that was set for us. Thank you for the call on our lives, even though it may seem like it costs us a lot. We thank you because we know the reward is you. We thank you that the, that the reward for being obedient to your call on our life is, is the God of the universe, that, that we will live and walk with God, that we will one day be present face to face with God himself that that is the promise that we get to look forward to as your faithful followers. I thank you for that, for, for this amazing, indescribable gift. Father, I pray for all of us as we are gathered here this morning that they may have a hard time with this kind, this level of faith, this level of obedience, this level of submission to God, that, that you would just give us, give us faith, 
Give us faith to trust what you say. Give us faith to to follow you even when we don't know what's going to happen. Father, give us faith that we may understand your ways. I pray, Father, along the way for each and every one of us that you would open the eyes of our heart and our mind and our spirit to more and more understanding of all that you have done and given to us. I pray that you would show us more of you. I pray, as we've talked about earlier, that that you would give us a passion for your word, to be in your word and let it lead us and teach us and inform us and give us more understanding of God and his love for us and his his desire for us as his children. Father, may we seek your will in our lives through your word in our hearts. May we seek what you have for us, that we would be willing to know your word and to take your word into your world and to teach the people of this world to live in your ways in accordance with the power of your empowering Holy Spirit helping us do these things. Father, I pray that we would be that kind of people, that we would understand that our faith is built on the foundation of God himself, that that our faith is not built on the shifting sands of this day and age that we live, that it is not unsure and unsettled, that we do not have anything to worry about because our faith is built on the rock of Jesus Christ himself. Our faith is built on God himself, and you have told us if we build our house on this rock, the, the, the strongest storms can come and beat against it, and it will stand firm. We thank you, Father, for giving us this firm, strong foundation of which our faith can be built on, that you provide safety for us in our relationship with you. Teach us to live in accordance with your faith, to obey you, to be obedient to your ways, for we know that not only is it for our benefit, but that it brings you pleasure when we live like Christ. Thank you that you see us through the eyes, through the lens and the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and that you see us and are pleased with us, your sons and daughters. Thank you in Jesus' name.